Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Inside the Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Tony Boucher, and we're going to be talking about depression. Now, just a little disclaimer, me and Tony are not medical professionals. So if you're someone who's dealing with severe depression, please pick up the phone and contact a doctor or a medical professional. Now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Inside Asperger Studios. Today, I'm joined with Tony Boucher. Tony, why don't you tell me and my audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, I come um, to the world of autism today on three fronts. My, uh, my profession for over 30 years now has been um, focusing on supporting uh, folks on the spectrum, but I am also a late diagnosed autistic person and have a lot of autism in the family, uh, including kids on the spectrum. So I'm a parent, a professional, and uh, a person living it day in and day out. I I work with um, teens and adults on the spectrum who are very um, highly verbal and um, coach them. We do a lot of like developing businesses. I have social groups where people get together and in a you know really autism friendly, safe environment, socialize and work on goals together. Um, yeah, and um, so this is this is my special interest. Autism is. I've um, I love <laughs> talking about it and sharing you know my experiences and what I know. So thanks for having me. Not a problem. So let's dive into the subject and everyone this is a very serious topic um if you are someone who's dealing with severe depression please note these are our opinions if you are dealing with depression please seek help now what can bring on depression to for somebody yeah so you know it's different for everybody and i think that that's one of the things that makes it difficult for those of us on the spectrum to get the help that we need Um, because we are more sensitive often, or we, you know, other people may say, Oh, well, it shouldn't bother you that you broke up with your girlfriend 10 years ago. um, Cause I'd be over that. And, and so it's whatever is upsetting to you and causes you persistent feelings of sadness and distress. So there's no criteria that it has to be some like life-changing thing or that it has to be something serious according to other people's standards. It um, It's whatever causes you to have issues with sleep, appetite. Um, it has you feeling hopeless, causes you to have decreased energy levels, difficulty concentrating, difficulty with self and, you know, self-esteem. Anything that that causes you to stay in that state for more than just a really short period of time um, is what brings it on. Now, what are some of the signs that someone may have depression? I mean, what do we look for? 
Yeah. So it's really important here to note that some of the typical signs for a person on the spectrum are going to be different than they are for a neurotypical person. And they are especially different for children on the spectrum. So what Mm. we find with kids a lot of times is that they're more, um, a, a lot of times that comes out more as anxiety or irritability for kids. And, um, restlessness what what you might find is that a child is going to be complaining of a tummy ache or a headache or difficulty sleeping and they won't say i'm depressed or i'm sad um that to an extent is true for adults as well um we we have a lot of characteristics that make depression unique in a way for us um So some of the ways that it's going to show up differently for us are that, you know, we often have emotional delays or have interpretations of our emotions that are different from other people's. We might feel things more passionately. We might feel some things less or not at all. Or maybe we have emotional delays, like we don't feel something at the time it happens. When my um, 12-year-old was 18 months, he went into the hospital for Uh, leukemia and he was treated there and everybody was like how are you holding it together I had no feelings at the time and afterwards now whenever I go to the hospital where he was treated I can't help it I just break down and cry and that was like 10 years ago Mm -hmm. Um, we have delays in our emotions and so we may not be identifying this is depression or I feel sad Um, but a lot of times what we see with uh, folks on on the spectrum is that we these things manifest in physical symptoms. You might be feeling really tired, not having motivation, having some kind of headache or stomach ache. Um, you might feel um, you might feel a little more aggressive. You might you know if you're doing any kind of self injury, um, anything of a self harming nature that can be exasperated for us when we are feeling depressed. Um, you know, something else that makes it really, I think, especially challenging for those of us on the spectrum is that we have, um, you know, our repetitive behaviors and our passions, we can actually channel those towards depressive thoughts. Mm-hmm. We get caught in those cycles of, you know, thinking about depressive things or thinking about our lives in ways that reinforce the depression. And that that perseverative thinking can be a really beautiful, wonderful, helpful thing when we channel it correctly. But when we are channeling it towards something that's destructive to ourselves, it can really um, just turn into a vicious cycle. So, you know, some of the other things that I think make it unique for us we tend to be more isolated, more lonely um, than our neurotypical peers, you know, given that we're different and given that we, you know, um, you know, we're wired the way we are. And there's a correlation between depression and loneliness. So that is definitely, you know, for those of us who have struggles with, you know, our social communication, struggles with our relationships, Um, that's going to make it worse. Um, yeah. I hope I answered your question. (laughs) Yeah, you sure did. Um, why is it such a serious issue? Well, 
I liken depression to, uh, it's a psychotic kind of situation where you cannot see reality for what it is. You tend to put on this filter that everything is negative. You cannot see solutions. You cannot see things um, in their full reality. And that leads to very, very unhealthy patterns of both the thinking and then behaviors. So depression is going to be um, leading towards often suicide uh, or suicidal thoughts. And it's just, it's so incredibly painful for people, you know, uh, you know, to wake up every day and just feel miserable, like you're, you know, you don't have motivation to live or you don't have you know, value as a human being, you don't have a worth as living. It is excruciatingly painful. It's going to impact your ability to have relationships. It's going to impact your ability to get out there and, you know, do something productive, whether that would be volunteering or doing some kind of, you know, work. So it affects everything in a really debilitating way. I think debilitating is the word I would use because mm -hmm. it affects all aspects of your life, your health. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're feeling depressed, you're not yeah. taking your body. So yeah, it affects everything. Now, how do you approach someone who's got depression that you want to help? I mean, you don't want to come across offensive. You don't want to stick your nose in your, but how do you help them in a helpful way? I really need, I love this question because I think so many times people want to help and they do the exact opposite thing. So what we don't want to do is just try to cheer them up and have them get over it. I think it's really important when a person is feeling depressed to acknowledge the pain that they're in, to see that person and let them know that you understand that they are in pain can be a very powerful thing. So rather than being like, oh, but you're so smart and good looking and you've got everything going for you, they can't hear that. So rather to say, you know, I hear you're in a lot of pain, you're really depressed right now. And, you know, that hurts my heart. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're feeling that way. And I'm here with you. I support you. And then to ask, is there anything I can do to help? Sometimes a person won't know what they need to help, but sometimes they will. And just being open to being in that uncomfortable, painful space with a person is a really, a really powerful thing. Um, so I think that's the first and foremost important thing is not to minimize it and not to mm -hmm. pretend like, you know, or not to try to convince them not to be depressed because that is not going to work. All right. What can be done if medicine won't work? Yeah. So interestingly, there's not a lot of research on what kinds of, you know, approaches are effective to help with this. So the things that I'm going to share with you are not what the doctors are going to tell you to do. They're the things that I have found to help people um, as I've worked with them throughout the years. And to be quite frank, um, there are things that have worked for me when I've been depressed and am depressed, because this is something that um, I've dealt with from the time that I was an, you know, a young child. Um, I didn't learn to be happy <laughs> until I was um, 
you know, well into my adult years. I think, you know, my whole family is kind of wired to be anxious and depressed. So I think one of the things that we want to do is um, make sure that we are being really aware of what our bodies are doing. So I encourage people to do body scans. And that means to just take note of how your whole entire body is feeling and, and do that daily, multiple times a day. Just note, you know, do I have tension in my neck? Is my stomach kind of feeling hot or tight? Um, is, do I have a headache? Are my eyes dry? You know, whatever, you know, do I feel tingling in my hands? Whatever you're feeling, it's really important when you're depressed and anxious. And those two come hand in hand, oftentimes more so, I think, in aut autism, the research shows, than out there in the general population. But it's really important to get in touch with what your body is telling you and listen mm -hmm. to. So body scans are number one. Because we sometimes struggle with what our feelings are, um, identifying them, getting in touch with your physical body is a more concrete way to then get in touch with your emotions. So it, it does a lot of things. It, it gets you in touch with your body, but it also gets you in touch with your emotions. So that's really important. Secondly, I would recommend that you get up and do something. Now, when you're depressed, your body shuts down and says, I just want to lay in bed. I don't want to do anything. And that's a very powerful urge. Mm -hmm. But the anecdote, one of the big anecdotes to depression is actually doing the opposite of that. So, you know, you've got to listen to your, you know, what your limits are. It doesn't mean you have to go out to a rave party and be around 100 <laughs> I'm not suggesting you do something that's outside of your boundaries. It might just be get up and take a walk around the block it, for some people. For some people, it might be call a friend or a family member. For some people, it might be get up and cook a meal or take a shower. It's, it's, it's very individualized what that something is. But if you find that you can get up and just like sit in the backyard for five minutes and listen to the birds or do that walk or call that person, you're going to find that that is really a good anecdote, that it really helps to, you know, to brighten your mood. And I'm going to be honest, you know, when I went through my most depressive stages and I couldn't get up out of bed, getting out of bed was like the big, like the hurdle of the day. So the fact that I got out of bed, that was my something. So be realistic and gentle with yourself on what that something is and don't compare yourself and what you're doing to what somebody else is doing um, because depression is very, very powerful. So if it just means getting up out of bed, then that's what it is. Um, I also encourage people, number three, to use stims, healthy stims, not, not the ones where you bite your nails bloody or you bang your head against the wall, but any of those healthy stims mm -hmm. that you do. If you, you know, if you, you know, use your fingers, if you rock back and forth, if you pace, if you do throat stims, um, those in spite of what the world has told us about being something we're supposed to not do, that's your body's internal wisdom saying, hey, I'm giving you something that you need. I'm giving your body feedback, and this helps to release energy in a healthy way. So stim as much as you can um, when it feels right to you. Move your body in the way that your body needs to be moved. And um, 
that that's really important. So another thing that I really encourage people to do is get out in nature somewhere and, you know, just walk or sit or be in nature. There's some research out there that shows that uh, taking a walk in nature is as effective as antidepressant drugs without wow. side effects. So it's powerful. If you, if you can get out and do that, that can be incredibly healing for a person. And it takes you out mm. of your negative thoughts and reboots you. Like when your computer starts to uh, like spin, you can't mm -hmm. just let it spin and expect it's going to go anywhere. You've got to reboot it. A walk in nature it can be that for some people. So getting a walk in nature is really important. Maybe that um, explains why when I was in going for my master's degree in England, every so often I would just, we had this little labyrinth, flat labyrinth laid out like in the middle of a field and I would sit in the center of it and just quiet my head and listen to nature and I try to that. identify the sound. And it just, I just felt this wave of emotions just leave my body like I felt 100% relieved. I love that. Yeah, that's very powerful. You you had that internal knowing that that's what you needed to do. Yeah, I mean, every so often I would find a place where it's quiet, where there's not a lot of camaraderie with school and everything, just away and just sit and let my mind quiet down. That's really powerful. Some people don't have access to that space. Let's say you're in the middle of a city um, or you're, you know, you just you've you've got agoraphobia you're scared to get out get on youtube find those nature sounds pick a nature sound that feels good to you i don't know if you can hear this but i have a little waterfall running in the background in my in my house um, that's just a soothing kind of way to bring the world of nature into my home and it, it does that for me that thing that um, sitting in that middle of that space did for you. So if you're not able to get out and find that space, bring it to you, you know, find nature sounds to bring indoors, even just a plant or little, you know, waterfall or um, something inside can really help. You know, depression is a condition of isolation. Mm. When you are feeling depressed, it's really important to connect to other people in some way. And again, it doesn't mean going out to like a Christmas party or, you know, having lunch with everybody at work or, you know, going to a, a baseball game or anything, you know, big and spectacular. It's more about having intimate connections, you know, one on one, if that's what you feel more comfortable with. And it could be just, you know, in little doses, but letting somebody know how you're feeling, somebody you trust, don't, don't go and tell everybody you're depressed. That's something, you know, we focus on the spectrum. Sometimes we lack that filter and we tell everybody and those people haven't necessarily earned the right to that information and it's not helpful for them to have it. But if you trust somebody, um, they've earned that right to know that part of your heart, then let somebody know how you're feeling and um, rely on, on them for just that human, you know, that, that human contact, that support. When we are connected to other people, it's really hard to stay depressed because it is a condition of isolation. And then something else I think is really important is to identify what your thinking errors are. 
Um, we tend to be very black mm -hmm. and white in our world. Um, and so if you have thoughts like I have to be perfect or I don't deserve to exist, that's a thought error. You may think it, it may feel true to you, but it's not correct. No human being on earth is perfect. We all make mistakes and that's okay. But we tend to get more depressed, feel harder on ourselves when we have those types of thought errors. So having somebody to help you identify what your particular thought errors are can be really, really crucial and um, can make a world of difference in getting you to rewire your brain towards more healthy thinking and more healthy um, you know, brain chemistry. So, um, are, are we still, I still have several more. Do we have time to, to get yeah, them we out? Have a lot. Yeah, we have a lot. Go on, keep going. So another important thing to do, and I know you, you and I, Reed, we talked a little bit about social media before yes. we came to the show, is not to compare yourself to other people. Um, a lot of folks that I work with who are depressed hinge that depression on, well, that person has a job or that person has a girlfriend or that person's doing better than I am. Or I look on Facebook and everybody there's doing so well and they're, they're happy and comparisons are so dysfunctional and they're not even real. Like just because that gal on Facebook is smiling next to a really cute guy you don't know that he's not cheating on her and beating on her behind the scenes. Like you don't know what people's struggles are. People put on a mask and show others a world that isn't necessarily true. So comparing yourself is a really, really unhealthy thing. It really prevents you from being the unique, wonderful individual that you are. And so I really encourage people to catch themselves if they're making those comparisons. If you're one of those people who does that, Get an ally, say, hey, you know, you know, talk to a friend or family member and say, I have this problem. I compare myself. Please catch me when I do it. Remind me. Having somebody else help you with that can really be supportive because our our brains tend to get used to certain patterns. And so if you're used to thinking mm -hmm. negatively about yourself, you're used to having depressive thoughts, you're used to comparing yourself, um, you don't recognize that you're doing it. It's just what you do automatically. So having that outside person say, hey, I'm here to help can really make a difference. Um, there are some breathing techniques that I really like and support. And these can be like game changers for people. Like sometimes when somebody comes to my um, office or I, I go to an appointment with somebody, um, you can see they're like really anxious and feeling depressed. And if we do 30 seconds or a minute of breathing together, you can visually see them like relax and feel like go from a state of eight of feeling really icky to like a state of three, like in 30 seconds. It's, it can wow. be very powerful. So some two, two breathing techniques that I encourage you to look up uh, if, if you're interested in exploring this are box breathing and four, seven, eight breathing. Box breathing just means you breathe in for like seven seconds, you hold your breath for seven seconds, you breathe out for seven seconds, you hold your breath for seven seconds. And it means each, you know, breathing and holding are equal amounts. It doesn't have to be seven seconds. Maybe you breathe every 10 seconds, maybe it's every three seconds, but the idea is that it's an even pattern and you focus on, on counting that out and that can really, that really is known to decrease anxiety. And because anxiety and depression are so closely linked, especially for those of us on the spectrum, 
dealing with that anxiety is really crucial. And that's one really good way to do it. Four, seven, eight breathing is you breathe in for four seconds, you hold seven seconds and you breathe out for eight seconds. And the beauty of that exercise is you're getting, you're really purifying your system by breathing out longer than you are breathing in. It cleans out those lungs. It cleans out your body. And athletes often do this um, to help um, get themselves really in a good mental state uh, when they are, you know, competing. So that can be another exercise, breathing exercise that can be really, really powerful. And if you just Google four, seven, eight or box breathing, you can find those online really easily. Um, mindfulness or meditation is a really mm -hmm. great activity. There's good research about that really, you know, rewiring our brains to more healthy brainwave patterns. And when I'm talking about meditation, it doesn't mean you have to sit for eight hours and go, oh, um, mm -hmm. although if that's your thing, you can. But meditation uh -huh. may be, let's say your special interest is looking at gem catalogs. Like I, I love gems. It's one of my special interests. And I have catalogs that are like 600 pages thick. And a meditative activity for me then would be to just look through every single page of that catalog. It's, it's, it's whatever centers you. So I often encourage people to take those special interests that you have and do something meditative with that. Maybe you paint figurines, you know, maybe you're into animals, you know, pet your animals, spend time with your animal. There's research about, you know, spending time with animals that lowers our anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, increases our, our um, oxytocin, which is our, what we call our love hormone and decreases cortisol, the stress hormone. So um, yeah, whatever your special interest is, you, you can do mindful stuff with that. Uh, something else that I have found to be really powerful for myself and some of the folks I work with are something called isochronic tones. So we know that at different emotional and mental states, our brains have different brain waves. So when we're sleeping in deep sleep, our brains are in Delta. When we're feeling anxious, they're in high beta. People who tend to have addictive tendencies, people who are really anxious are revving their engine at high beta all the time. So isochronic tones entrain the brain and teach it to go into um, different brainwave states. So I find those to be really powerful. And you can find those on YouTube. Just type in isochronic tones and experiment. Find ones that work for you. Some have music or nature sounds in the background. Some are just pure tones. I like the ones that sound like purring kittens or clicks. There's something that like I stem on them. They're very, um, they're very soothing for me if I find the right one. Um, but don't give up if you try one and it doesn't work. Say, no, that one's not for me. Some of them annoy me to no end and <laughs> they're not they feel good to me and so I'm like okay that's not the right one for me um, another thing I think is really important and works for some people really well is to look at yourself in the mirror when there's research that shows that we become more attracted and find more appealing those things that we look at a lot and when you're depressed and you're feeling really down, chances are you don't even have a relationship with what you look like. Um, you probably not even, you know, you're not probably showering or, you know, brushing your teeth or combing your hair. So you may not be having that identification with who you are as a, a person in the physical realm. So sometimes if you just look at yourself in the mirror 
and focus on what do I like about my appearance? Do I like my thick curly hair? Do I like my eyelashes? I like the color of my eyes or my cheekbones, whatever it is, there's, everybody has beautiful features, you know, something, you know, and so finding those and really developing a relationship with your physical image um, can really be helpful. I know it's weird. And sometimes when I have a, a client try that, they're like, Tony, are you sure about this? And oftentimes they'll be like, yeah, that was really good. I'm so glad I did that. I didn't realize like my eyelashes were so long or that my ears are cute. Um, so study yourself and, and, and get familiar with yourself. And finally, uh, baby steps. This is not about flipping a switch and going from being you know, depressed to being happy. This is about taking little steps that work for you to get yourself so that you're in a better state. And that doesn't happen, you know, like overnight, typically. That's something that takes little baby steps over time. So don't be discouraged. Um, it's a process and it takes time. All right. Now, we haven't talked about this yet, but mental health, I know you know, and I know plays a big part into it. Things like burnout and trauma. How does it play a big part? And how do people know, say like they're burning out and how do they know it's going to lead to them having depression? Such an excellent question. I'm so glad you asked that because there's no fine line. I think when we're on the spectrum, we like to really put things in. I think all humans do actually really like to put things in categories. And there's no clean line between depression and burnout and anxiety and trauma and addiction. All these things are more like a big, messy ball of stuff that gets intertwined. And what we do know is that you know, if you have had traumas in your life, you're going to be more likely to be depressed. If you have, you know, if you feel anxious, you're going to be more likely to be depressed. So think of these things as all kind of working in conjunction together. And if you do something to work on your trauma, work through that, that's going to help you feel less depressed. And if you work on your anxiety, that's going to help you feel less too. You know, there's quite a bit of discussion now about for example, how bullying, you know, those of us on the spectrum are at greater risk of being bullied. Um, I had it, <laughs> a lot of it, uh, lots of the, many, many of the people that I work with um, dealt with, with bullying. And there's a correlation between that and depression and anxiety. So from a prevention standpoint, really like noticing any kinds of changes in your child or in your loved one, um, really like being aware, okay, you know, they're having trouble sleeping now, or they're complaining of, you know, headaches a lot, or they're, you know, avoiding going to school. It's really important to like get underneath that and take a look, okay, is that change like the start of something that could lead to depression or is it depression? Um, so, you know, I don't have like the magic bullet answer for that question, but I think the take home here for people to know is, you know, all of those things are interrelated and burnout. I, I burn out many, many times in my life <laughs> um, badly once for an entire year. I, I was so burnt out. I just ceased to function for a year. Um, and that is something that, you know, 
oftentimes you don't realize your burnout until it's too late. So going back to the body scan suggestion, like when you're in touch with your body and you know how your body's feeling, and then you honor that you're authentic to what your body and what your heart is telling you, that is super, super important. Um, We talked about masking before the show started and how that really contributes to burnout and Mm. people feeling, um, you know, depressed. So like really making conscious decisions to be as authentic whenever you can, whenever you feel safe, I think is really um, one of those preventative things that can be done. Be who you are. And, uh, you know, that, that goes from the very, very core of our coping mechanisms, which for some of us, you know, stimming, which for some of us were discouraged at an early age and we were taught that those were wrong. Those aren't wrong unless they're harming yourself. Those are your body's internal wisdom saying, this is how I'm going to cope with something that's difficult. So being true to what your inner wisdom is telling you um, is really, really important. And any little work you do on preventing burnout or any other comorbid is going to help with the depression and vice versa. All right. Now, why does depression go on theme? So one of the things I think that happens is that people put on that face, like everything's fine. And we're acculturated to do that. You know, if I go to, you know, out and see my neighbors, um, I'm not, you know, and they're like, how are you doing? I'm like, oh, it's fine. I'm good. Everything's, you know, lovely. That's not true. I may be dealing with, you know, (laughs) um, really depressing things. And so you put on this face, we we put on this mask and nobody really knows what's going on inside of us. That's, I think, a huge piece of it. There's stigma still, I think, to having any sort of mental health issues. So depression is, you know, while a lot more people, I think, are talking about it and normalizing it, and many, many people are depressed. The the statistics actually show that autistic people are four times greater risk of being depressed than the um, typical person, and they estimate between 10 and 72% of people on the spectrum are depressed. Um, so, but we're not seeing that because that's not what we show. The other thing is a lot of us have very flat affect um, or don't express our emotions in ways that other people understand, or maybe we don't feel them the same way as we talked about earlier in the show. So a lot of times clinicians or family members, loved ones just assume, oh, that person's, you know, it's just a sign that they're autistic because they have a flat affect. So a very, um, a, a person who's not autistic, if they have a typical way of interacting in the world and then suddenly they have a flat affect, people are going to notice that and think, okay, there's something wrong with this person. But if you're autistic and you have a flat affect, people just assume, that's just the way you are. There's no, it doesn't mean anything negative. So it just makes it harder to identify. What are some of the misconceptions about depression? I think that one of the misconceptions is that most people are not depressed and that there's, you know, that there's less people maybe out there in the world that are, than really are depressed. And I think that, you know, the suicide rates 
um, indicate that, particularly in our community of autistic people, um, the suicide rates indicate that there are more people that are depressed than people who are not, because you're not going to kill yourself, you know, if if you're not depressed. And so the suicide rates amongst us show that um, there's a lot of unidentified depression. So I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, not, you know, just assuming everybody else is doing well, when there's, I think, an endemic, really, really um, significant level of the, the population who is depressed, especially, you know, coming out post like, past two years of everybody isolating, you know, through, you know, coronavirus, we're having a host of mental health issues, like whether you're autistic or not, <laughs> uh, we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues as a result of, of being isolated and dealing with all of that. And so um, it's not, you know, it doesn't make you, being depressed doesn't make you a weak or a bad person. Um, I think sometimes, you know, that stigma of, oh, depression, that person, something, you know, something must be wrong with me as a person. No, that depression is a sign that something's out of sorts in your life. And it, you know, we need to look at what that is and come up with solutions for it. Um, I think those are big ones. Do you have others that you think of? Um, one, I think one of the big ones of is what my friends always told me is that his parents see him as lazy yeah and i think that's one of the biggest ones because i think they view it as lazy because we just don't those who are depressed just don't have energy mm-hmm. and it's a battle just to do anything because you're dealing with those negative thoughts constantly in your head yeah yeah i think i agree with that and i think that um you know, just getting out of bed for some of these people, as we talked about, is takes Herculean effort. So, yeah, and, and it's not being lazy. It's not about somebody not wanting to do things. It's not about somebody being willfully, you know, defiant. And it's not about somebody being lazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about what can be done about depression. I mean, how can you help somebody who has got depression? I mean, it's, it's not just enough to walk up to them and say, hey, I know you're depressed. What can we do as somebody who wants to help them? Yeah. So I think, you know, a big piece of it is to offer to be that accountability person. You know, if you have somebody and this goes for any kind of behavioral changes, like let's say, you know, maybe it's you have depression and that's really your only identifiable issue, but maybe you've got anxiety too, or maybe you've got addiction or all three, um, then having somebody that you, you know, that you can say, Hey, look, I'm anxious going out the door or I'm anxious making phone calls or, you know, I've got this addiction problem going on. I need you to help hold me accountable. Having somebody, um, help with accountability can be very powerful. But the key is if you're that person, that accountability partner, that ally, you got to do it on their terms. You can't make the decision about what they need. Like, oh, you, you're scared of phone calls, but we're going to turn you into a phone salesman, you know, because that'll help you, you know, cure you of your anxiety. It's more about listening to what that person needs to feel safe and secure in an environment. So maybe, um, you know, maybe it's just listening. 
but maybe it is, you know, helping them with certain tasks that they feel anxious about or feel, you know, um, you know, are, are more powerful than for, from them. And I'm talking again about anxiety and addiction and trauma in relation to how it all ties in with, you know, with our depression because they are linked. Um, so I think those are, are really important, um, you know, things to do. Now, if say I have depression, what steps can I take <clears throat> before it gets worse? Yeah. So um, I think first of all, there are hotlines. So if there are, um, you know, if you are feeling like you don't want to live anymore and you are, in, it's in the middle of the night and you're alone, there are hotlines. So I would encourage you to, you know, look up those hotlines. Um, they're not all, they're not all created equal and they're not there to provide you with therapy, but they give you that like little moment of talking to a human being and helping you to, you know, pause some self-destructive thinking. So just know that there are hotlines out there for you. And I think if you're depressed, the first thing that you can do is to contact somebody that you trust and let them know you're feeling that way. That is a very powerful thing. I think we said earlier, depression cannot exist in community and in connection. Um, it exists in isolation. So, you know, think about that one person that you trust that you could open up to. Now, some of you out there might be feeling like you don't have somebody, but I want to tell you a story about this. Um, I was in an abusive situation for several years and was trying to get out of it. And couple years after I was out of that relationship, which was very depressing for me, of course, um, I was talking to a former neighbor. We had kept in touch and, and I was telling him about some of my experiences there. And he was like, he got real quiet and he looked at me and he said, Tony, I did not know that that was happening. And if you had told me that he was doing that to you, I would have solved the problem right then and there. I would have come over I would not have let that happen to you. So this was two years after I'd exited the relationship and the thought that I could seek help or that this person would help me did not even occur to me. And I think that's very common for us in, you know, in our community of folks on the spectrum. We don't always know to ask and we don't always yeah. you know need to ask. But that was very, that was really powerful thing when he said that it was like, yeah, I had, I had a support and a help that I didn't, that didn't occur to me. I didn't even think of it. So um, I think, you know, sometimes we have supports we're not aware of. So take some time to think about who your support might be. All right. Can simple things help push depression away? Yeah, I think, I think some of the things we talked about today are those simple things. Um, one thing, you know, that, I think happens is our filters get blown, especially those of us on the spectrum who can be very hypersensitive to things. And we're out there in a world where our filter gets blown. There's noises from trucks and people are laughing and shouting and popping cans and things that other people just don't like have an issue with. And they're, they can be physically painful for us. So I do think that very simple things can really be very helpful. Just 
taking a sensory break, I think can be really important. Getting mm-hmm. yourself in an environment where your sensory world feels right to you. Um, I'm a very stimmy person. I fill my house with stimmy textures and stimmy things to look at. And so just, I have a, a chair, it's an eggplant colored chair and it's velvet. <laughs> and I just, I, when I'm feeling that I need to soothe, I sit in that chair and I just, I, I, I pet it. Um, and that is very, very grounding for me. So I think any stims that you have, um, whether they're visual, they're tactile, they're, you know, spinning, anything, those, those are simple and they can really, really make a difference. They can really help. So that's my number one thing is go back to your stems. You can have a little stem case, um, like a little, um, a sensory toolkit, um, where you put, you know, headphones or ear, earplugs, um, you have some, you know, little, you know, get fidget devices, gadgets that you can take with you. For my family, we have a lot of sensitivity to certain kinds of light. So we have red lenses in our little uh, sensory bag and, you know, really minimizing any of those external kinds of sensory overwhelm can really make a difference. And, um, you know, again, that helps with anxiety. It helps keeping your physical body feel grounded and in conjunction, it helps you to feel better, which is really the opposite of being depressed. Now, can being overstimulated cause or bring on depression? You know, there's no research on that, but I think it can. Because for us, overstimulation can equal pain. It can equal overwhelm. It can equal us not being able to communicate as effectively as we otherwise would. So it leads to isolation. It leads to us just wanting to go in our houses and not go out and, you know, be in the sun and get that vitamin D, which, I mean, talk about a cause of depression. Um, Vitamin D is definitely something that we need in order to be our best in mental health and physically. And so many of us have sensory issues to the sun. And so we're staying up all night gaming and not going outside during the day, getting our vitamin D. So yeah, it it can definitely, in my opinion, contribute significantly um, to to that. If, If you're so overstimulated every time you go out, you're going to isolate yourself. You're not going to go out in the world. You're not going to have that connection because it doesn't feel safe. So I, I think that's a really important, you know, thing to keep in mind is you've got to take care of your sensory needs. Can depression be, uh, can depression be prevented? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Every human being has ups and downs in their life. We're all going to have an event or a situation that causes us to feel sad or loss. Depression is when that feeling goes beyond what is helpful. If we lose somebody because they died, you're going to feel that loss. And you, if you, are capable of just working through that and coming to resolution, 
that's that's good. But oftentimes we're not able to have a resolution. So I think a big piece of prevention is identifying what our emotions are, knowing those, being in touch with, okay, this is how I feel when I feel sad. This is how I feel when I feel happy. Um, this is how I feel when I'm scared. And really knowing that those emotions are our internal compass. They are our guide. We The point is not to get rid of them. The point is not to say, oh, I don't want to be scared. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to feel sad. The point is to say, ooh, I'm feeling sad at this moment. What are the implications of that? Something in my life needs to be addressed. So anytime you feel an uncomfortable emotion, ask yourself, what is this telling me? Is this telling me that I need a new job because this isn't working for me? Is it telling me I need, you know, it's time for me to get a new pet because mine died, you know, three years ago and I'm lonely. I need another one. Your feelings are always telling you something. And when we acknowledge our feelings rather than push them away and listen to the message they're giving us and problem solve to address those feelings, then depression doesn't have a place to take root and take hold because we're using our feelings the way they're meant to be used in a healthy way. Okay. Now, can escapism be a form of way of helping with depression? Yeah, so it can. And I think at certain stages in particular, so there there are two sides to this coin. There's a point in your depression where you are so miserable, you're ready to die. And at that point, it's not the time to go in deep and feel more pain. You need relief. You need a little bit of relief. And escapism can do that. So if you are at that point where you're just feeling really suicidal and you are wanting to self-harm, you know, having a fantasy world, playing a video game, reading a book, whatever your escape is, is really important. Because at this point, your goal is just to feel a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better until you can function. If you're in that kind of low-grade depression where you're not actively wanting to harm yourself, you want to actually, with the support of guidance, somebody who's trained to help you, you want to actually go deep into those feelings and really develop a relationship with them. Because I think one of the things that we, we do is we feel, especially in the autistic community, we can be so hypersensitive to feelings. You know, I saw somebody's house burn down on the news. I want to cry and it shuts me down for the day. We are very, very deeply empathetic and we feel things very deeply and very passionately, some of us. And so a lot of times we want to shove those feelings away and we go into a pattern of just numbing ourselves and not feeling them. And as we mature, as we you know come into adulthood, what I see is a healthy development for us is to get used to those feelings and so at some point, we want to sit with the sadness. I think it's, it's a problem when we say, I'm depressed. That's wrong. I need to fix me. I need to be somewhere else. 
because that's tearing, that's not acknowledging where you're at. It's not acknowledging those feelings. So sitting with your feelings and saying, you know, I feel grief. I feel deeply, deeply sad about this loss that I had. Like sitting with that feeling will actually allow you to move through it. And the feelings will kind of loosen up and and break up and dissipate on their own when you face them, when you avoid them, you just cram them down in there and they get deeper and deeper. And that's when we see more depression, more anxiety, more trauma, because then we re-traumatize ourselves with Mm -hmm. our perseverative thinking. And so it's really important to be able to sit with your feelings when you've got the support from, you know, a therapist or somebody who's trained to deal with these things to help you out. Very well. I mean, a lot of people don't realize how severe depression can be. I mean, we're now seeing more and more people literally kill themselves and finding out later on the news that it was because of depression. And this is why it's such a serious matter is because people don't share their emotions. They don't share. They feel they have to hide what they're feeling on the inside because they don't want to burden the world. Yeah. We've lost so many good people because of it. Read that. This is such an important point. I, I look at depression as a terminal illness and I think it needs to be treated as such. It's not something to be taken lightly. It will end in, um, you know, a person either being actively suicidal or even just passively, because if you don't care enough for yourself to like, you know, pay attention or, you know, eat healthy and exercise and do all those things, you know, um, that's a passive suicide. And, you know, other people, like you said, um, are very active about, you know, acting on that. Men are more, by the way, um, likely to be able to follow through with suicidal um, Mm -hmm. intentions than women. Um, they tend to be more um, effective with the suicide. I think that's important to note. Um, you got to take all suicidal, um, you know, thoughts and all anybody who says, you know, I want to, you know, I want to kill myself. That's something to be taken seriously. Yeah. Um, it's 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 not something you want to ignore. Yeah, I mean. Not many people know this. When I first went away to school in University of Wisconsin, Oshkosh, I was part of an LD program because I, I had a learning disability. Back then, we didn't know I had autism. So one day, I was just feeling really down and out. And I just said, I, just, I go to my friends, I just want to kill myself. I just don't feel good. And my friends took it upon themselves to walk me over and say, you're going to make an appointment with the therapy department to see somebody to talk about why you're feeling this way. And they literally stood there with me, made sure I made that appointment. And then they said, we're going to walk with you to Dave, your appointment. So make sure you go. And I did. I love this story because it goes back to what we were saying about having an ally, somebody who helps with the accountability. Like that's hard, you know, to get in there and talk to the therapist. So you had somebody who like walked you through every step and, at a point where you probably couldn't have done that on your own. No, I mean, there have been times in my life where I've told my parents, I just want to kill myself because 
things aren't going right. I can't find a job. Everything else around me is happy. My brother's got a life, kids, a wife. And my mom would always say, why do you want to do that? You're going to leave your your nephews behind. You're going to leave me and your father behind. And then I just like snap out of it. Yeah. Some people that does work. I know people who are so deeply suicidal, so in such deep pain that that doesn't matter because the pain is so great. And when you, when depression gets to the point that it's that deeply ingrained, what people want is for the pain to stop. Yeah. And so that's part of what I think is interesting about those of us on the spectrum and important to know is that oftentimes because of our black and white thinking or, you know, we get real rigid sometimes our, our, the way our brains are wired, we often don't know that there's a solution. So oftentimes people think, okay, I'm depressed, solution, knock myself off. That'll take care of that. Well, yes, it will. But there are other options that are have less harmful side effects. <laughs> Let's put right. it that way. And we don't, we don't always see those. So again, bringing this back to having interaction with other human beings being so crucial because when you're in that state, you have, it's like you have blinders on and you cannot see other solutions. There are other solutions out there. It's just, you don't know that they're there or what they are. So this is not the, 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 the solution to depression is not to be, it's, it's not a one person job. You don't get undepressed by yourself. No. This is something that we as the autistic community need to come together because we know it well, you know, you've been there. I've been there. We've done this. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a community problem and the solution is our community. We've got to come together, you know, to address it. You know I mean, I have been the account, the accountable one for my friend, because when we first started talking every so often, he just go, I want to kill myself. Yeah. Um, and I sit there and I say, don't say that you're going to leave your family behind. And do you want to do that? He's like, no, I'm like, then there you go. I'm like, I understand you're feeling down and you're feeling worthless and helpless but you got to understand everybody's different. You're going to find your one knack and you're mm-hmm. going to, you're going to find, you're going to become happy, but it's, you got to work on yourself. I told them. And that's in, the bottom line. In my experience, when people are able to do the work, and I'm not saying this is easy because it's not, but when you do the work, the hard work, you do come out on the other side of it. And the people, I I worked with a lot of people who are very, very depressed and very, very suicidal. And when they come out on the other side, they're glad Mm -hmm. to work. It was hard. It sucked. It was not fun, but there are so many things that they're glad they're experiencing. 
And when, when you come out on the other side, this is, this is really hard for people who are stuck in the depression to see. And sometimes now, like when I'm driving down the road or I'm sitting and drinking my cup of tea, puer tea is another one of my obsessions. I'm really got a special interest with puer tea. So just sitting and savoring that tea or just looking at the sun or the clouds, like my heart wants to explode with joy. Like I have real joy in my heart that back when I was depressed, I didn't even know that existed because I just didn't have a context for it. I had to do that work. And now I have a whole different perspective on life. Not that life is easy um, always, not that I don't get down or feel depressed sometimes because I do, but now there's this joy that makes it all worthwhile and that is on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, read something else that you said, which I think is very powerful and very important. All human beings have value and add something to this planet. So if you are out there and you are feeling worthless, I am here to tell you that that is, you may think that, you may believe it, but that does not make it true. Some of the most beautiful human beings that I have ever come across are those people who went to those dark places and knew what it was like to really suffer. They were bullied. They had, you know, parents who misunderstood them. They had traumas of all sorts. They felt that their life wasn't worth living, that they, you know, were not um, validated as, as people. And, they worked through that and got to the other side and they're some of the most powerful, beautiful people that I know today. And they make real and meaningful contributions to their, to their world, whether that's in being the best table wiper at, you know, the Taco Bell or, you know, doing the kind of work we do, getting the word out, you know, and helping to, you know, get people educated. Um, all human beings have value. You as a human being are beautiful and have value. And that's what I try to tell my friend. I'm like, listen, you aren't worthless. You got to just find your knack. And once you find your knack in your special interest, you will be, you'll, you'll reach that other side. And I mean, we were talking one day and I, he told me, he's got a very highly sensitive palette of taste. I'm like, I'm like, okay, that is one of your autistic traits Mm -hmm. that you're able to taste things in food. You should really take advantage of that. And he's like, where's the cat? Where's the catch? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're going to drop a joke or something saying, ha ha ha. You're joking. I'm like, no, I'm serious. You have a knack. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of Aspies may not have that knack of taste. Use it to your advantage. It's a wonderful, beautiful gift to have that. And, you know, this goes back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, Reed, like how little things can make a difference and how the having such a, a world that's so overstimulating can be so powerful. You know, we are... I think as autistic people, we are the canaries for our world. If something is 
out of balance for us or something affects us negatively, I think the whole world needs to be asking, is this a good thing for us? Because we are highly sensitive to mm-hmm. many things. And that can be a really powerful and useful thing. And, you know, it, it, it takes us back to, you know, Epicurus, who is very much one to, you know, to so, um, advocate us savoring the simple and the good things in life. And I think as autistic people, we are very, very well wired to, you know, to do that with our, our sense of subtlety. So your friend who has this really, really beautiful um, sensitivity to taste, he can probably taste the differences in water type, oh, types yeah. of waters and wines and teas. And what a wonderful experience to have that some and people yeah. never know. He's sitting there telling me, oh, yeah. I can taste the difference in bottled water. And I'm like, what do you mean? There is no difference in water is water. And he's like, nope, I can taste the bitterness in the different bottled waters out there. And I'm able to pick out the ones I like. Yeah. like I, I would I, like rent because we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. yeah. But um, you mentioned something earlier that kind of rang in my head. You said we have a delayed reactions. And that kind of answered something in my head. When my father passed, I didn't cry at the funeral. And then later on, I bro- I started crying. I mean, it happened, my dog had passed and I didn't cry. And then every so often I'd be taking a shower and I'd just break down crying and just cr- crying and crying that I miss her. So that explains why at the funeral, I just felt stoic. Like I, mm-hmm. I felt like I had to force myself to cry because it's my father. I kind of felt like I owed it to him to cry. Yeah, everybody deals with their emotions differently and grief. That's a, that's a place I think where a lot of us feel a lot of guilt because we're not responding to things the way other people are. And that's okay. Your 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 internal wisdom knows what you need, and a lot of people on the spectrum do have that delayed response, and that's normal for us. And I think it's really important for us to really, as a community, come together and say, okay, developmentally and emotionally, what's normal for us? Yeah, a lot of people on the spectrum are not going to cry at somebody's funeral, and that's okay. It doesn't diminish their sense of loss or grief. It doesn't make them insensitive. It's just that's the process that your heart and body and soul felt you needed to, you know, to go through. So that's very normal autistic behavior, I would say. It's been an amazing show, Tony. You're an amazing person. Oh, you are too. It's been so good to talk about this. It's I'm really glad that you brought this up. It's um, such an important topic. And, you know, we don't, you know, the research doesn't, you know, tell us a lot right now about what we can do. So I hope that, you know, some of our conversation will um, at least spark um, an awareness for some people who might be needing to support somebody who's depressed or help, you know, somebody who's feeling depressed, have shine a little light for them to move yeah. forward. Well, that is it, everyone. That was Tony Boucher. We're talking about depression. I'll see you on the next one.
miss the way things used to be I'm no big fan of now I must have some sweeter memories Somewhere in the cloud Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Welcome to the new normal Shout Welcome to the new normal Gonna miss all you used to be huh. Gonna miss all you had Consigned to the dustbins of history Like opinions from your dead Talk to the freaks. You can talk to just about anybody you happen to meet. It ain't what it was, and it is what it is. 